Right. So this is office hours. And the idea behind this is to give students in an online program the experience of talking with professors um, in a brick and mortar experience. So today I have two guests to um, well, I'll let them introduce themselves um, and then we'll talk about what we, what we were talking about before we began. So can you guys introduce yourself? Sure. So I'm Dr. Carol Kershaw, a licensed psychologist in Houston, Texas and director of the Milton Erickson Institute. Um, married to this lovely gentleman, Dr. Bill Wade. Yes. <laughs> and I'm uh, licensed as a professional counselor and as an emergency family therapist. I'm also an ordained Presbyterian minister and co-director with Carol of Milton Erickson Institute. And we had a private practice that went on for 30 some years before we retired it just to concentrate on writing and teaching. Yeah. And right now we're going all around the country uh, doing workshops and seminars. And I might add um, that as part of our practice, we also ran a biofeedback and neurofeedback clinic that really over probably the last 25 years has informed our psychotherapy. It really changed the way we looked at things. So just by way of introduction. Yeah. And before the interview, uh, we were talking about how I first got introduced to, to your work right. and, um, I don't remember exactly, but I do remember being in, it was 2015 and I had just done my hypnosis training. Um, and around that time I had somehow stumbled upon your guys' work and you were talking about how certain states, certain emotional states, certain brain states um, are almost um, like switches, right? So if you turn on one, the other one automatically goes off. And I had this light bulb moment because I realized that's, how I was asking the miracle, the miracle question. Okay. So I would be talking to someone and I had, you know, done it for a long time where you'd ask somebody to, you know, if something was different um, and you notice one little thing, what would you notice? And if they were depressed, they'd be like, well, I don't know. <laughs> right. And so we would be talking and they would be, you know, just in this deep depression and they would say something, right? Like, and then my boyfriend came over and um, he just looked so stupid. And I'm like, he looks stupid. And then the, the lady would be like, yeah, it was actually kind of funny. And then she'll get this smile on her face. And right. then I'll ask the miracle question. Yes. yes. And the response I get would actually be productive. Yes. yes. So perfect. The timing of the state change, you waited for that and then... Uh, and then you, you, your, the miracle question really conditioned momentarily the state she was in. Right, right. Perfect. Um, and for me, that was a watershed moment. And that's really how, even though I don't remember what was the first way I got introduced, that was the big idea. Uh -huh. um, and I think you guys talk about that almost as like the hidden, the hidden common factor, right? State change being the common factor that we overlook but it's that's common right. in all successful therapy. Exactly, that's exactly that's right. right. Yeah, that's when we started to look, all therapies work somewhat, to some degree with some people, from psychodynamic to CBT to family therapy, all of its many incarnations. Right. All of them work about the same. None of them outdistance any other statistically uh, when you do research. What we then began to look at is why do they all work equally well? And we stumbled across, and this was through our work with EEG biofeedback, that 
when people change their brain state. And there was research done years ago on state-dependent memory and learning. And we realized, boom, what you learn in one state of arousal, one brain state, you remember best within that brain state. That uh, is true for people who are trying to perform, get too tense, get too discouraged, as well as just normal everyday people mm -hmm. going through their lives. And so what we decided and followed this through was that psychotherapy needs to do what you are doing, which is you wait for the change or you do something that creates a change, change yep. then the cognition can follow along with That's that. That's right. Yeah. And they can tap into other ideas, solutions, or whatever that they couldn't in a depressed or highly anxious uh, state of mind. Yeah, yeah. so we, we um, you know, we, we, you know, being married to your partner and your co-therapist is really great because we get to have these really good discussions. So we did ask that question a long time ago. If we could find the common denominator, what would it be? And we also not only did neurofeedback, but went into the neuroscience literature for quite some time. And there it was over and over and over again, but nobody had really connected it with the exception of neuro-linguistic programming years ago, but, they, but it wasn't really connected to the neuroscience field. So that's what we, uh, we feel like our contribution is. And we've seen remarkable change with people in fairly short periods of time. Right. And again, we, we looked at two different things. One uh, had to do with brainwave frequencies. This is what we got from doing neurofeedback. So we looked at delta frequencies, theta, alpha, uh, beta, high beta, gamma. And we saw those on our monitors when we were doing EEG biofeedback. And we could look at what was the predominant brainwave frequency. And that was the brainwave frequency with the highest amplitude. Then we began to uh, look at Jacques Ponksepp's work. Uh, Dr. Ponksepp passed away this last year. Yeah, yeah. it was really sad when I, when I found out about that, because he was Dr. brilliant. Yes. Yes. He was in the animal science uh, division or department at Washington State. Right. And he came across seven neural circuits or neural systems, systems. probably is better. Uh, emotional this, systems. Uh, emotional systems. And <clears throat> we looked at rage uh, or anger, mm -hmm. um, panic or distress, uh, fear. Mm -hmm. Then there was sex or lustful uh, neural circuitry. Uh, then there was play. Uh, nurture uh, and curiosity. Mm -hmm. We started looking at if a person could switch from one of those neural systems to another neural system, then would they be able to make use of therapy better? And could therapy help them do that? Well, we looked at what do therapists ask a lot? They will say, hmm, that's interesting. Ask, tell me more about that. And so when a therapist does that, from a hypnotic point of view, it creates an internal search but it also creates a benign curiosity. Say more about that. The miracle question, what would be life be like if this happened? Right. Again, you're creating and utilizing curiosity, which turns off fear and turn off anger. And that therapy uses that in all forms of, of therapies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, man, there's so much there. I don't even know where I wanna go in first. Ryan, do you do you want to have the have the first rally? Oh man, uh, yeah, I'm kind of in the same spot you are. Um, what was one of the, I guess, the first things that started connecting those dots for you? Because it seems like there were a lot of things that you were seeing at different times. Mm -hmm. um, 
but they weren't necessarily initially connected. When did it all start to like move in that direction? Um, it was astounding to me personally when we worked with um, really difficult problems and, and neurofeedback was the choice of intervention. Yeah. And within a very few number of sessions, for most people, we saw significant change. And what people were doing on, on the neurofeedback system is they, they were hooked up with electrodes to a computer that read their brain waves and playing a video game that would only work if they were in a certain state, uh, focused attention, certain attention state. And um, so we began to look at that. When they were in a certain attention state, they could not feel anxiety. They had no access to depression, certainly not to panic uh, or grief or sadness or any of that. And as they practiced the mental state and conditioned it, they reported to us, you know, other things in their life began to clear up their relationships. Um, I mean, it just seemed talk about sort of almost magical in some ways. And of course it wasn't a hundred percent across the board, but we saw some really remarkable things happen. Mm -hmm. So we began to kind of look at that and, you know, neurofeedback is very expensive for, practitioners and clients and we started to ask ourselves you know would would we be able to put this in the context of psychotherapy and if we could what would that look like and what would we do we also since we were trained in hypnosis and family therapy uh, particularly Ericksonian hypnosis and strategic therapy started looking at a lot of the things that Carl Whitaker Milton Erickson did that seemed off the wall uh, and they began to, they would do things that would suddenly shift somebody's state of arousal. So Erickson, we would scream at somebody, stop. Or when Whitaker would do something that was paradoxical, Jay Haley would do something that was paradoxical. It interrupted a particular state of arousal. And that state of arousal that opened up the possibility of a person seeing the world differently uh, for just a moment. So we started looking not just at neurofeedback, what successful therapists had been doing right. that created startling and amazing and rather quick results. Mm -hmm. right. It's crazy as you guys are talking about that. I'm seeing how much um, I think that your thinking has just influenced me, um, honestly. Uh, I remember very clearly watching Tony Robbins yes. um, mm -hmm. in his new documentary, I'm Not Your Guru. And he does this thing where he'll go up to somebody and just like shake them or, you know, slap in their face or do something. Um, and, you know, being an, an acolyte of this idea, mm -hmm. I've studied emotions and I know that shock surprise is a pause state, right? It's yeah. where you don't know where to, whether to move forward or away from something, right? which, which if you're stuck in one state of depression or anxiety or whatever, that's a great way to shift somebody out of that state and then ready to them for something else. Yes. Um, and I think along the same lines with you guys, like before I understood that, the things that therapists did, the ones that you read books about, seemed bizarre. Right. It just yeah. seemed like this is the weirdest thing right. to, yell at that, to yell at this person. But after you understand how the states shift, I mean, it makes, it's, it makes a lot of sense. Sure. Right. So we're, we're um, pretty calm folks, so we tend not to do 
sort of bizarre thing. So we were, we were really interested in how do we do that in a fairly calm, a warm, empathic way and found some pretty powerful brain change tools. One of them we talk about in brain change therapy is uh, what we call the deep state, the deep state where we take people down to the edge of sleep. This is particularly good for trauma. And, um, and when they can kind of hover there for 10 to 10 minutes or so, uh, this remarkable thing happens, and that is that the brain goes into a, a focused state. Uh, we would call it a flow state, really. And so there are certain chemicals that are released in that state. One is called anandamide, which is a Sanskrit word for bliss. It's an endocannabinoid. Yeah. And uh, it actually has a very, the very similar chemical structure to marijuana. So our brains really produce this uh, neuropeptide that is very healing. And, um, you know, after we, we wrote our book, it's more and more information has come out on this system that's been discovered called the endocannabinoid system, that if we can access it and use it in therapy, it has remarkable healing powers. Yeah. And, and the flow state is one way to get people into that healing place um hypnosis deep hypnosis is another and there are a variety of tools can i, can I jump in there and ask a, ask a question so i think what you're saying is um something that i think only you guys can really answer um because i i would almost suspect for people who are you know ericksonians and well-versed in that tradition what is the con Oh, why would you need to use or choose to use uh, neurofeedback? Well, can you can you can you do the same things with hypnosis that you would do in? Yes, the one thing about neurofeedback, uh, and I'll give you a case that uh, we really kind of used. Uh, but one of the things about neurofeedback that you don't necessarily see with hypnosis is we can see the brainwave patterns on our monitors. Right. Uh, but we can do the same thing when Carol talked about deep hypnosis we're doing that without a neurofeedback system. Mm -hmm. The first time we did this or found this clinically for us with neurofeedback, I had a client come in, um, he had migraine headaches. And so we did uh, deep state work with him for getting over migraine headaches. That's alpha theta training. So he was down in a state that was high alpha, high theta. And we did that for about 40 minutes a time, twice a week for a summer and the migraine headaches were all gone uh, at the end of the time, and they never came back. But what happened was he said there was a problem he wanted to work on afterwards uh, when he finished the migraine headaches, and what he did was he came in for a follow-up visit, and he told me of a situation that had completely changed his, in his thinking, and it happened not because we talked about it, but we think because he was in this deep dive, this deep state of alpha-theta. And it completely shifted his perception of what was going on and why he had developed the perceptions that he had. And this was at any talking therapy. So besides suggested hypnosis, which is what Erickson did, his own uh, type of suggested hypnosis, uh, this was a hypnosis that wasn't using any language at all. And again, we looked at the literature and it was because the endo, uh, 
cannabinoid uh, that was released, uh, the anandamide, in this deep state. So you can do this with hypnosis, uh, as well as Erickson looked at suggestive hypnosis as not just making a suggestion to change things, but opened up and says, in this state of trance, reconnecting with resources. So uh, to be curious, to be persistent. And he often talked about early learning experiences. And he helped people reconnect with the most positive, uh, most healthy sides of themselves in trance. So again, we looked at not only deep trance, but lighter trances as well. So this can be done not only with neurofeedback, but also with hypnosis. Are there physical markers um, of being in theta or alpha? Oh, yes. Yeah. So theta, of course, is a deep state, like a deep state of meditation. And the muscles of the face tend to flatten out, just kind of like a person's in a state of hypnosis. The color of the face changes. And in theta, deep theta, uh, eventually a person goes into rapid eye movement. That is where they're doing reprocessing if you're working on trauma. And what's happening is, uh, which is what the brain does at night, and what happens in EMDR is that the memory of an event that was upsetting is getting moved from short-term to long-term memory, which is what, where you want it to be. So it's something that happened to you, you know, in the past and something eventually you don't have charge about anymore. So the facial muscles get very relaxed. And this can happen also when a person is very active. You look at athletes and they're in the zone. They're highly focused. They're very relaxed. They're primed and ready to act in a split second. But again, they have no thought. They see a situation and they respond to it in an appropriate way, but even though they're moving very fast, there's a high level of alpha activity going on in the brain. Okay. Right. That's right. Is there a way to physically distinguish between alpha and beta, or are those deep, deeper states sort of? It's a little hard to do it um, as an observer, but um, of course we had the advantage of hooking people up and doing hypnosis while they were in deep state so we could see wow. the difference in the way the face looked. And so the deeper a person goes, the more immobilized people become. And you think maybe they're asleep, but they're, when they're in deep states, but they're right on the edge of it. Right. There are about four hertz or four cycles per second uh, is the predominant uh, highest brainwave frequency. Um, now, athletes are not likely to be in deep theta states. They're producing theta. We're producing brainwave frequencies from a half a cycle per second to 80 cycles per second all the time. The states are, um, I guess, typified with what, that, what brainwave frequency is the highest dominance. In alpha, uh, which is a lighter hypnotic state, a person might be very active. In theta, they're likely, as Carol said, to be very still, because they're just above what we would call sleep. Yeah. How do you how do you know which which um, frequency is dominant? Again, if a person's having eye, rapid eye movement, gotcha. That's telling us that they're in theta, because sleep really kind of blends into theta. Uh, we're not just asleep or awake. Mm -hmm. There's the dream state that's kind of crosses between what we would call delta 
and theta, somewhere between four to five cycles per second. Um, so that's going on when, with the uh, eyes in theta. Mm -hmm. Also within alpha, uh, again, the person may be very active. So again, baseball players, pole vaulters, ice skaters, they're highly focused, very relaxed, where the muscles are responding. So again, the deeper that you go, uh, the more your body's likely to be very, very still. Right. You, can, uh, you can notice people, uh, athletes in alpha, like um, Brady, Tom Brady, yeah. you know, in the Super Bowl. He was so focused, and you could tell he, he had not a worry in his mind, not really, <laughs> because there wasn't room for it. Right. <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, and he was able to bring the team back, which was pretty remarkable. And even once he loses, he's on to the next one. Right. He's not beating himself up. So again, you're in this state of flow, the state of highly focused attention, where you're looking at things that you need to do without the self-criticism uh, that can happen uh, with anxiety. Yeah. So we've really come, come to this idea that um, it, the problem, besides the problem is the mental state people have habitually been in and the narrative that's gotten attached to that and the perspective that's gotten attached to it, the pattern of emotion and patterns of behavior. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we talked last week with a buddy of mine, Douglas Flemons, who I think is wonderful. And um, I think everything that he's doing is state work. Uh -huh. um, okay. So yeah, I, I, yeah, I think you guys are, um, well, yeah. <laughs> and again, you, you change the state, then you work on the narrative. Yeah. And, and, and more simple problems, no, no therapy problem is simple. Right. More, some are more complex than others, but ones that aren't as complex, you can enter uh, a change process by questioning a person's thinking. The more that thinking has then become attached to a state and then behaviors that reinforce that and perspectives, then we think, again, the surprise that you were talking about earlier or things that other therapists have done that shake people up, open them up to the possibility. Then therapy works on how do you reinforce that thinking, reinforce those behaviors, but then also reinforce that state mm -hmm. that you want them to have. Yeah, so a favorite assessment question I like to ask is, um, under stress, are you, you more likely to feel anxious, depressed, or a combination of the two? And the answer to that will tell you how their nervous system operates. Yeah. So, then that, that tells me what kinds of interventions I might want to help the person with. That, that is, are they in states that, um, you know, are uh, activating their sense of safety, that is fight, flight, freeze, or faint. Right. And if that's the case, then we need to work on developing uh, safety and comfort and the ability to, to stay in that longer periods of time and so forth. So. Yeah, we feel like this is a very powerful idea. And, and tie it in with Milton Erickson. We do a lot of traveling, so we're in airports a lot. And we watch children. And children are <laughs> running around. Usually, you, know, you have a good mommy or daddy about five to ten feet away from them, just making sure they don't get run over or run away. But children are extremely curious. Right. And we're in this state of curiosity. They are frightened. That's right. And they will go up to strangers, dogs, 
whatever, and interact because they want to find out about that. Well, yeah. Erickson, again, utilized the early learning set and had people remember at a deep emotional level those early learnings of learning to walk, write, do whatever, because we come into the world wired up to be that way, wired up to be curious, wired up to explore, to do something with the world. And that's, again, where Erickson uh, was very influential for us. Right. I am. Um... I do I have like three different jobs at the moment. And one of the things I do is I work with senior citizens uh -huh. um, who have some sort of dementia, Alzheimer's stroke. And um, I remember being at the hospital working with these people and thinking, oh my God, they have lost the governor. And it feels as though these states are now um, running the show. Because oh, right. they, they, in my opinion, they do things that are directly reflective of these states. They'll get up and they'll just wander, which to me is the seeking curiosity state, yeah. right? Or right. they'll just pace. They don't even know what they're looking for, but they just, or right. sometimes women will just like have a baby doll and just rock it. You know what I mean? That's the, that's the nurturing state. Yes. Right. That's right. And then there's always that one grandma who was always angry and, you know, <laughs> the family's like, she wasn't like this. I don't understand. Well, that's, that's, you know, that, that rage state that's been, um, exactly. That's yeah. now in the dominant state for whatever right. reason. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I have a I have another question I want to ask you guys, but I want to let Ryan get some of the sure. action. Yeah. This um this could be its own can of worms that we might not want to dive too deep down, but um I'm practicing in Colorado right now. Okay. So I can already hear uh, the latching on that happens as soon as you said endocannabinoid. Right. <laughs> and, uh, sure. and, and I can already hear people latching on to that and then thinking, how can we change state uh, using marijuana, using cannabis, stuff like that. What would you say about the ways that the introduction of outside substances could have an effect on the way that you would be working with these things. Uh, yeah, basically just, could you speak to well, that? Um, a couple of things from yeah. my perspective in my study is, uh, first of all, um, I think it's always a good adventure and experiment to, if, to, to have people try to, have an experience of their own endocannabinoid system without a substance, uh, because usually people are rather astounded at what happens to them in this deep state. We've had uh, people have remarkable insight, creative solutions to problems, um, things that come to them that they would never have dreamed, you know, that they couldn't like make happen consciously. But, when you've got also when you've got really 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 severe uh depression severe anxiety the literature now the neuroscience literature is saying just a small amount of marijuana can be very useful if it's um if it's you know managed by a physician or somebody that's where the person's not going to seek after that in an addictive kind of way and that's always the Catch 22, I think, with the substance. Yeah, the other thing is that we found when working, again, with neurofeedback with heavy marijuana users, um, the, the problem with marijuana in terms of recreation 
because people can get very much hooked into that kind of stoner state. It's very pleasant. But when we did neurofeedback, we saw high levels of theta activity, not from the back of the brain, uh, but from the sides and the temporal lobe. And they were chronically stuck in that. So while they were blissed out and weren't feeling any pain, which was good, they also weren't accomplishing anything. So they didn't have the ability to shift. There's a time to be in theta, to be able to meditate, go very deep, do all sorts of things like that, and then shift up for problem solving in beta, uh, or even in the gamma. Monks who meditate often produce bursts of uh, gamma when they're meditating on compassion. So it's not that a theta state or an alpha theta state is necessarily better than any other state. Mm -hmm. There's a healing ability that goes along with theta and alpha. At the same time, if you're going to do your taxes or do anything to teach, learn information, you have to have sufficient data activity going on. And uh, our son, who lives in Colorado uh, and is a neonatologist, one of the questions he has is, is this good? In the recreational use, especially for teenagers, because right. he, as a neonatologist, deals with a lot of young girls coming in who are pregnant and have very premature babies, and many of them have been heavy marijuana users. So again, we're talking about a substance that probably should be regulated. The question becomes how much mm-hmm. and when can a person utilize that, whether that delays or inhibits development uh, personality-wise or cognitive-wise. And so again, what Carol was saying that the more a person can tap into their own brain's ability to produce an endocannabinoid, then we think that's better. That is, is the best. Yeah. And, and, you know, we've seen, gosh, with uh, 20 sessions, okay, 20 sessions of deep state work, major anxiety disorders have cleared up. Mm-hmm. And then we say, say to them, now, you know, when you leave, there are some things you want to do to to keep reminding your brain how this feels so you can carry it into your waking life. So meditation or just deep relaxation at home is really helpful. As well as psychotherapy of some sort or another, where the cognitive abilities that may have gotten stunted because of anxiety or depression then are able to uh, move forward, as well as skills. Uh, Sometimes people become depressed, Mm -hmm. anxious, and they retreat, withdraw, and they lose the inability they lose the ability to negotiate, to interact with people in meaningful ways. So psychotherapy, besides changing the brain state, also you need to work on the ability to, again, develop skills cognitively and behaviorally. So guys, we, uh, we got about 10 minutes left. Um, and I want to ask one more question and then give you guys the floor to say anything that you want to, that you want to say to, to students who um, are just beginning their, their, journey so my my last question for you guys is i heard you guys say something once in passing um about placebos and how we miss um understand placebos um it's something about how placebos are actually the body's natural healing sort of ability Uh, yeah but the word is sort of a misnomer we think Mm -hmm. because we have enormous abilities at healing um you know, we've, uh, we've I, I had this great opportunity to study with um, Dale Walters, and actually Bill did yeah. too, who was the psychologist who worked with Elmer Green, the father of biofeedback. Okay, wow. Who back in the 70s went and studied the Tibetan 
advanced meditators and he hooked them all up and watched what they were doing and so forth. And uh, they could do remarkable feats because they practiced, you know. Uh, and so if you look at, um, you look at people that are the most advanced and ask what, are, what have they done to get where they are, um, well, the placebo is merely a name for this amazing healing capacity we have. So uh, we know now with the placebo research, even if you create your own placebo sugar pills and you say to yourself, I am now taking this pill, albeit it's a sugar pill for this cold, actually it in increases your immune response. Wow. <laughs> so, so even though you know it's fake, you know, it's, it's going to help you. There was a, there's a film that was done some years ago with the Royal Academy of Medicine. And uh, a hypnotist worked with a young boy whom they all thought had warts almost over his entire body. And they showed pictures of before and after the treatment. Well, the therapist made suggestions that the warts go away. And they did. That was a mental thing. However, this goes one step further. He didn't have warts. He had ichthyosis. His sweat glands didn't work, and so he had skin built up almost an inch thick on his, over his whole body. So not only did, did the suggestion work, it worked for a problem that wasn't even targeted. Mm -hmm. um, we know that um, Herbert Benson took a film crew up to the Himalayas in the 1960s and filmed Tibetan monks meditating in a room uh, it was about 40 degrees, maybe a little bit less. They had wet, wearing wet sheets. And they were chanting, and they dried the wet sheets to film steam coming off of their backs. Now, you don't learn this in a weekend workshop. We think Tony Robbins is great. You're not going to learn that in one weekend with Tony, okay? But, but this begins to show, again, they're not that genetically different. They may be a little bit shorter, uh, younger, uh, whatever. But... The mind created a situation that in a room where they should have developed hypothermia, yeah. they were quite warm and they were drying the sheets. So again, placebo really points to making, the brain have the ability to make changes that may be much farther mm -hmm. uh, away than we, we thought uh, was the case. Yeah, and I think, you know, it also, says to us that we all have these limiting beliefs about what we think we cannot accomplish. Um, and some of them are hidden to us. And so when you start to explore the capacities of your own mind and you have some astounding discoveries, then it points the way to what is possible, you know. Now Erickson defines psychopathology as a combination of learned limitations or developmental gaps. Things that had happened in life where a person got stuck or stymied and they didn't develop the cognitive, affective, and behavioral skills that they needed to in the next uh, phase of life. Right. And so, again, we're not saying that they're not neurological problems, because there are, but again, with placebo, it's tapping into the mind's ability to heal uh, in ways that we didn't think were possible before. Wow. Well, guys, I really want you guys to have the last word. We got about five minutes left, and I'm, okay. uh, what's your what's your soapbox? The thing you wish people would would take away that students need to know as they move forward. 
Um, and particularly students, I, you know, I was a professor for about 15 years in uh, graduate school and uh, really wanted students to know that you're going to come up against your own ideas of what you think you can't accomplish. And if you'll just stay with it and be persistent and get to the end of the semester and discover what, what there is, their gifts at the end of the semester. <laughs> so not give up. Yeah, and, and to look at this profession as therapists as a lifelong process of looking at every way that therapists do therapy, every school of thought. If you master this school as a family therapist, go to the next school in a sense of psychodynamic, right. cognitive behavioral, Ericksonian, you name it. The other thing that we really want to uh, suggest and emphasize is to do their own work because we use ourselves, our own eyes and ears when we deal with a patient and our perception is going to be different than what's in a textbook. And it's going to touch us in many, many ways. And the clearer, cleaner we are, we can be a, an accurate mirror to our patients rather than, this. there's going to always going to be some distortion, but we want to distort as little as possible. So doing their own therapy on a lifelong basis. And I might add, uh, you know, so Bill and I do workshops all around the country if people would be uh, interested in getting our monthly newsletter, they could go to our website, which is drscarolandbill.com without punctuation, DRS, Drs. Carol and Bill. And um, we, were just, we were just invited to do um, kind of a major article for the Neurotherapist Journal out of Sydney. And so I'd be happy to share that with you and anybody else. Absolutely. I would love that. Yeah. It would be interested in receiving it. So awesome. Yeah. So thanks so much. I'll put all that stuff in the show notes for this episode. Okay. Um, and guys, I have enjoyed this so much. And thanks for being so gracious for, for coming. Oh, thank, thank you. Thank you, Jordan. Nice to it. meet you. And, and, and Ryan, thank you hey, for Ryan, your questions. Yeah. Thank too. you very much. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for coming on. Yeah, oh, you're welcome. Appreciate it. Enjoy Colorado. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I will. <laughs> All, All right. right. Talk to you guys later. Okay. Bye -bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.